So good evening, everyone. Um, Since it's the new moon, we're going to chant the refuges and the precepts together. Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Buram saranam gacchami Dharman saranam gacchami Sangam saranam gacchami Dutyampi budam saranam gacchami Dutyampi daman saranam gacchami Dutyampi Sangam Saranan Kachami Tatyampi Budam Saranan Kachami Tatyampi Saranan Saranan Kachami Tatyampi Saranam Saranam Kachami Panati Pata Vealmani Sikaparam Samariyami Adinadana Vealmani Sikaparam Samariyami Abramacharya Vealmani Sikaparam Samariyami Musavata Vayamani Sikaparam Samariyami Sura Mera Majapana Datana Vayamani Sikaparam Samariyami So it's nice to chant the precepts and refuges together. You know, these nights of the new moons, it's a special time. You know, people stay up all night practicing and rituals are done. It says that you could accrue a lot of good karma today. You know, my Tibetan teacher used to say, one prostration is like a thousand prostrations. <laughs> so pray a lot. <laughs> That's if you, you know, you don't have to always uh, believe that either, you know. It's just sweet to do together. So I was thinking a lot about what to share tonight. Sometimes it's, it's hard to be a Dharma teacher. <laughs> it kind of looks easy, I think. <laughs> like I remember sitting you know, watching, like, ah, so effortless, yeah. But sometimes it's hard to think of what's the appropriate teaching, like what's needed, what's helpful, what's valuable. You know, you want to provide encouragement. You want to, you want to, I know sometimes when I'm on a retreat and it's been a hard day or a lot, you know, you come to the evening and you want something to keep you going. You know, it's like, give me something to hang on to, you know, or something to uh, support me or help me understand what's happening. So I wanted to 
to just share a, a, a talk that I want to talk about insight, the nature of insight. What is insight? We're doing this practice called insight meditation. And also about ignorance, what obscures insight and what it obscures us. And I want to talk about these three qualities uh, that I've nicknamed the three assassins. Uh, so I'll get more into that in a little bit. <laughs> they're nice assassins, though, you know. In some ways, they're nice. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking a lot. Uh, I had talked to Dom Ruan earlier, and he said, why don't you talk about some stories from your own life? That's kind of, you know, maybe just share some, some of that. So I started to think about my first retreat, And um, I did my first retreat in California. It was in Yucca Valley. I know some people have sat there before Yucca Valley, this beautiful retreat center in the desert. It's really nice to be in the desert. There's a certain feel to it. I guess it's kind of like you could think of biblical times or sort of like Moses in the desert or you know, walking in the desert or the Christian mystics with the desert fathers, these stories that they build these caves and hermitages out there and so that it has some beauty practicing and so I went to this retreat and I was having a very difficult time in my life I was about 23 and uh, I was doing very badly uh, inside you know I, I, I don't know if I talked about this but sometimes we come to retreat when we're having kind of a 911 crisis Many people arrive at retreats like that, right? Everything's falling apart. Sometimes people don't have, have anywhere to live after the retreats. I was like that. I had all my stuff in the car. I had just broken up, have a, a relationship with my partner, and he and I would have these arguments that would go on and on and on. And uh, I was living in Oakland at the time, and I, to make matters worse, I had a job selling timeshare. So it was terrible. Oh, my God. Sadly, I was good at it, too. It was kind of like, wow, you know. I was a top sales, you know, I was the go-to person. It wasn't good, you know. I, I, really, I started to go, I don't know about these Palm Springs timeshares, you know. It just was a life I didn't want, you know. And, and it just, everything was just seemed terrible. I was very depressed, but acting very confident on the outside. I think we're really good at that in our culture, right? We kind of present this like, oh, everything's together, mm-hmm, doing great, mm-hmm. And then there's this inner kind of crisis happening, this inner, it was like I was dying. And I, I didn't really I was, know how to fix it. And I became a Hindu for a period of time because there was a temple in Richmond, which is about 20 minutes from Oakland. And I would go to this temple. It was the Paramahasa Yogananda School. And we would, I would go to three-hour meditations. And nobody ever taught you anything. You just showed up and you sat for three hours. right? They didn't say mindfulness. They didn't tell you any instructions. They would chant. A woman would chant every hour to mark the hours that would go by. And I remember just sitting there and just, you know, you could imagine just trying to sit down for three hours, right? What happens in your mind? A lot of thinking. And I can remember after two hours, I'd finally get so tired of thinking about my problems. The third hour would kind of, out of desperation, I would fall into some kind of meditation. Like I would just naturally start to get quiet. But after going to this all the time, I started to think, I need a teacher. I think I need to teach, I need to understand more about the mind because all they would say would be, think about God. Right? And then I'd be in the meditation and it would be all, hell would be breaking loose. You know, I was like, God, I'm not thinking about that. I'm trying. And they'd go, go sit some more and burn some incense, you know. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh. I don't know if this is working so well. So I had heard about this retreat that they teach, they give you instructions. It was before the Spirit Rock Meditation Hall had been fully constructed. So they were renting venues all over. They do retreats like that. So I'd heard about this retreat and I had, you know, quit my job. I had my stuff in the car. I was really in a bad state and I drove 10 hours the night before the retreat started 
I mean, we had a terrible breakup with my partner, so I was like, I'm out of here. It was one of those really like a telenovela, you know, moment. <laughs> like, I'm starting a new life, you know, very dramatic. And, and then I drove down in my car for 10 hours, and I used to chain smoke, so I was chain smoking, and I had so many nervous conditions and issues. And then I was drinking Diet Mountain Dew by the gallon. And, and I was crying uncontrollably. And so my car had bottles and cigarette butts. And it, it was this, I didn't even know how I didn't get into an accident, actually. It was not good to be driving. And it totally exhausted. I mean, on top of that, I had slept. Was, you know how we get before retreat. Sometimes we can get wound up. <laughs> but this was bad. And I remember I drove down there, and it was like, if this doesn't help me, this is it. It's, my life's over. You know, I can't continue in this kind of situation, this mental situation that I was suffering. And so I showed up at the retreat. And I didn't even know who taught it. All I knew was that it was silent, which I know I needed. I was like, I need to be quiet. And they taught you instruction every day. That's all, I, that's all I knew about it. I didn't ask any more questions. I did the little paperwork online. I was like, okay, I'm there. And uh, that night in the Dharma Hall, uh, Jack was there, which I thought was very interesting. He was leading the retreat, Jack Cornfield. And he started off giving this talk, and he said, Oh, nobly born. And he went on to give this talk about our true nature. And it was so touching. You know, it was like, oh. It was like some kind of reminding, remembering of like, oh, there's something in there that's beautiful, that's good. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm nobly born. Yes, okay. It was like a remember, a deep remembering started to happen. It was like, oh yeah, there's all these issues, all these mind states, all this crying and screaming and wailing and freaking out and trauma. But there's this something at the core. He was like reminding. I felt like he was talking right to me. It was like, remember who you are. And it was like I sat up straighter. It was like, oh yeah. And the next, over that ten days, became this deep remembering. It was very powerful. It changed my life. It was one of those moments where I did die. Something died at that retreat, walking out on the desert. You know, and something was reborn. Something woke up. There was a memory of, of some other kind of way of living. And I always say, uh, it was at that time that I ordained myself out in the desert. I love when the Buddha they say when he left his palace, he ordained himself on the bank of a river. Like, he gave himself like vows. I love that. And I ordained myself on this hill out way in the back of the desert. I climbed way up this little um, mountain, you could say. And I was like, this is it, right? Today I start something I don't know what, but I, I'm, I'm not going back to how things were. And it stayed. It began the process of a, a journey. And who knows, it took me all the way. Here I am sitting here. Couldn't have imagined that. Life is unexpected. Truly it is. You know, expect the unexpected. So this, this nature that he was referring to, this, this, this kind of innate beauty, this innate goodness that's inside of every being, why don't we live that all the time? Why don't we access that all the time? You know, it's like, I love it in Buddhism that at the core, we're already enlightened. It's like, but we, for, we forgot, <laughs> right? It's obscured. These veils are obscuring the truth, which is different because, you know, I grew up with teachings that said that your core is something really bad, right? We kind of have this innate sense that, oh, if people knew the real me, it's really dark or really... You know, we have this fear of that, like somehow deep down there's like some kind of demon there, you know. But there's the opposite in the Dharma. It's like at the core there's this radiance. There's this beauty. And the whole practice in some way is clearing the veils to that. Uncovering that. 
I think that that's um, a huge part of what we're doing here. So Kabir, the great mystic poet, writes, the guest is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We're all struggling. None of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades and a million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly awake in this world. So I like that. It's the sprout is hidden in the seed, the jewels in the lotus. You know, it's this teaching back to our own heart and how do we uncover the veils? How do we discover that? Also, I found this, one of my, found again, you could say, one of my favorite poems by Rumi who speaks to this. Now, a Dharma talk wouldn't be a Dharma talk without a Rumi poem, right? <laughs> Got to have one, at least in California, you know. <laughs> so Rumi, he writes, This is love. To fly, toward, to fly towards a secret sky. To cause a hundred veils to fall each moment. First to let go of life. Finally, to take a step without feet. So I like that. To cause a hundred veils to fall each moment. And I think that that's what we're doing on retreat. It's these veils to the truth. These veils that obscure the beauty, obscure the radiance. And Dharma practice is this way of dissolving them. Right? We sit long enough in the present moment and everything starts to fall. People talked about that in interviews. And there was this intense vulnerability. You know, one would fall and we would get frightened or we'd feel completely exposed. Right? Like we had, we were naked, you know. But I think that that's a good sign, this kind of nakedness that we, we come to, a sort of a humility as we sit on the seat. So what obscures this beauty and radiance is what I want to talk about tonight more, get more in-depth with this ignorance that is kind of clouding everything. And this word ignorance is an interesting word. I didn't used to like hearing that, you know, I'm ignorant. It kind of made me feel like I had no knowledge or understanding. It was like, But as we know in this world, some of the smartest people on the planet do the most destructive things. So we're not talking about a lack of education. That's not the ignorance we're talking about. One can know about many things, even have many degrees, have attained a lot, even have a very high IQ. And some of those people are creating really terrible weapons or even policies harming groups of people. What we're talking about is wisdom. (coughs) Wisdom is balanced with heart. Wisdom sees the interconnectedness of all of life. Wisdom has compassion and clarity. So, ignorance is the obscuring force here. And I found this other story when I was reading. Thich Nhat Hanh had this great version of the Buddha's enlightenment where he says, says all the final veils of delusion were finally burned away and then the, the truth shone through, you know, like this. But it's always what's already there. And that's important to remember. So this ignorance, this not knowing, not seeing clearly, not seeing the true nature of things. And I think what's so interesting is that we desperately do want to be happy, but we choose the things that lead to unhappiness. You know, through not knowing, through not seeing. And also the things that are very obvious we don't see. You know, we don't see impermanence clearly, but it's everywhere. You know, we don't see suffering, 
deeply a liberating kind of suffering, yet it's everywhere, right? We don't always, we can't see these things. I think that that's what's so fascinating is that we're, we're submersed in the truth, but somehow we don't see it. There actually is veils to everything. So I want to read a, a story kind of about sort of pointing to that. I think you'll get the gist of it. It's called The Violinist in the Metro. A man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that over a thousand people went through the station most of them on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace, stopped for a few seconds, and then hurried up to meet his schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw the money in the till without stopping and continued to walk. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him, But the man looked at his watch and started to walk away. Clearly, he was late for work. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother tagged him along hurriedly, but the child stopped to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced them to move on very quickly. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it. No one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but this was the violinist Joshua Bell one of the best musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston. Seats averaged $100. This is the real story. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the metro station was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and the priorities of people. The outlines were, in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in an unexpected context? One of the possible conclusions from this experience could be, If we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things are we missing? So I like that because I always feel that we're always missing life in some way, right? We miss the beauty. We're going so fast, so quickly. One of the things about growing up is that I was asking questions continuously of the adults around me. <laughs> I was always asking my mother these questions, like, why is this how, why is life like this? Right? I would ask other people, why is that person outside screaming? Why is this person weeping? You know, the television was a fascination because it was all these images that were quite sad to me. It's like, what's happening to those people? Right? And finally, my mom just got tired of answering anything. And she looked at me one day. I think she was just uh, irritated. She said, spring, life's a bitch, then you die. I don't know. That's, what, that's, all, that's all I got for you. Right? That was the great wisdom. Right? I can remember that kind of ended my you know, question and answer sessions with her very quickly. But I thought, that can't be all to the story, this is it, and then, you know, I thought, my God, that's so sad, right? So I sought out wise people. I became interested in that, right? And when I was at my first retreat, I remember hearing that there's a possibility of freedom, 
right? There was this being called a Buddha. There was awakened people. And I remember that came as a surprise. I was like, wow, this, there's a way, there's a path. If you haven't really taken that in, you should take it in. There's a real path to the ending. I was so happy to hear that. And people practicing that path, people who cared, people who were interested, who had the same questions I did. So I became interested with this kind of intensity. You know, I wanted to know more. But mostly I wanted to know what obscured the truth. Why can't we see clearly all the time? Why aren't we acting like this now? And that brings me to the, this teaching about the Buddha talked about these three characteristics. It's a classic teaching, three characteristics of existence. So let's look at what that means. Three characteristics of existence. So if we look at fire, we take fire, a characteristic of fire would be heat. We could say that. So it seems that what enlightened beings are pointing to, not just Gautama, the Buddha, the Buddha that we know, but many of them, they're pointing to this experience of being human has three classical characteristics of it. There's, a, there's three aspects, right? And I think of these as the assassins because what they do is when seen clearly, they kill delusion, right? They assassinate our deluded qualities. So the job of these three characteristics, these insights, really, there's three ways of seeing, they destroy ignorance. It's their job. And I like the images a lot in the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. You see these, you know, the iconography of these uh, you know, Mandrashri is one, like a sword of wisdom, right? And his sword cuts delusion. It's kind of like, sorry, this has got to go. It's for your own good. You know, chop, right? That's what the assassins do. It's like, if you've ever said in your whole life a prayer like this, I bet you have, I'll do anything to become awakened. I, I want to bring this on. I want to become an awakened being, free of everything. You have just invoked the assassins. Right? Because anything that's not of that comes. Right? Anything that we're holding on to, the dukkha, the impermanence and the, the not-self, egolessness. It's seeing these things again and again that clear the veils. And even sometimes we don't really want to see them. This is something I want to just talk about a little bit because Joseph mentioned the roll up your mat and go home stage. At any retreat, I actually think this is a good stage, and I, I've, I've been at that point many times. I was at the forest refuge, and I was doing a long retreat, and uh, there was a wave of Burmese Sayadaws who came. It was like Upandita for a month and a half, and Ulakana for another month. It was just like I was just practicing, and one day it was as if I saw too much. Right? One of those assassins cut me a little too much, and I was like, that's it. I, I, say, I don't want to know anymore. Right? I've, I've reached the end. I, I don't, I, I'm done. Buddha and I are breaking up. I'm leaving. <laughs> you might have many breakup moments with the Buddha in your practice. If that hasn't happened to you, it will. Right? Okay, you had me to this point. Now I'm done with you. Right? This can't be the truth. I, it's not the truth. I refuse to let it in. Right? I refuse to accept this. That's kind of how I left one of my retreats at the Forest Refuge. I refuse to accept this level. Things, some things are sacred, and I'm going to hold on to them. Right? I kind of had that attitude. And I, I left the retreat. And uh, it didn't work very well. You know? I came back a, a short time later, not to the retreat, but back to the teachings. It was like, OK, let's keep looking. Let's keep paying attention. So our dukkha, we have to get very close to our suffering a lot because there's this giant root in the mind, right? And the only way to uproot it is to go right down into it. You know, you have to get, you have to look at it from every angle. How am I creating this? 
We create our own stress and suffering, and we have to start to see that again and again, and that's painful, right? We have to be willing. Also an aspect of dukkha that I've seen in myself, and I continue to work with all the time, is this perpetual wanting to be somewhere else. You notice this? We're on retreat, we're like, I can't wait to get home. We go home, I, oh, I wish I was at retreat. Right? It's always the opposite, right? We're on vacation, oh, this is boring, I wanna, go on, I wanna go on a retreat. We get to the retreat, I wish I was on vacation, or I wish I was at work, or oh, I work too much, I wanna be here. Every moment I saw this in myself, I see this all the time, kind of way of responding. This is also by Joseph Campbell, he says, As Buddha observed the workings of his mind, he realized how one craving after another took possession of his heart. He noticed how human beings were ceaselessly yearning to become something else, go somewhere else, and acquire something they do not have. Blinded in our desires, we almost never see things as they are in themselves. But our vision is colored by whether we want them or not, how we can get them or how they can bring us profit. These petty cravings assail us hour by hour, minute by minute, so we know no rest. We are constantly consumed and distracted by the compulsion to become something different than what we are at present. I think this is the level that I'm working on a lot. I see this motivation, always wanting to be somewhere else, do something. You know, I'll be sitting quietly, it's like, I needed this. Have you seen this? I needed that. One of the things that the ego's biggest games I've seen, the biggest one of all is the ego will say, something's wrong right now. When, some, when we hear that voice, something's wrong, that gets us right up off the cushion. Like, something's wrong, what do I need? I've got to fix this. What's happening, right? Something's not okay. Something's not okay. The ego kind of operates with that. It's always putting on an alarm system, right? The moment we get calm, it's like, you know, in school when someone would pull the fire alarm? (laughs) The ego will pull the fire alarm on you every moment of the day, right? And we run all around, try to put out the fire. But somebody pulled it by as a joke. Everybody's outside looking around, right? This used to happen in my high school. I'm not sure why. <laughs> it seemed like every other day there was some kind of fart bomb or something. I don't know. It was funny for everyone to get riled up and take everyone outside and create a whole production, right? It was all an alarm. It was not happening, you know? Stink bombs, that was what it was. <laughs> but it just takes a little bit to like make everybody evacuate, you know? Very small amount. This is what the ego does all day long. It's job. This is dukkha, right? Most of my practice, a lot of my practice is actually my hand on my heart saying, it's okay, spring, everything's okay, the alarm's not pulled, it's safe, you can rest, sit on the earth and rest. This is a lot of my inner, that's my inner coaching. I think Joseph has much more like really deep coaching. Mine is, it's okay, <laughs> you can sit here, <laughs> relax, there's no problem. There's no problem. The ego always wants a problem. It has to feed on a problem. It exists on problems. Its nature is to have a fight. It has a war. It separates. It needs a this or that. It needs a I. It needs a you. Right? Well, happy and peaceful. I want you to do an experiment while you're here and notice having a moment where there's peace, no problem, And then I guarantee all your suffering will start with this. I, I, me, my, I, me, my. The story starts right there. Then right after that, there's agony or clenching or pain or misery, right? It's like the birth of the eyes. I think Joseph talked talked about the grass coming up through the cement. Out of the peace, here comes something we've got to fix, something we've got to do, a wrong we have to right. And it all needs to happen now. 
The ego also, the alarm is the urgency of I have to resolve this at this exact moment in time. Otherwise, I could be dead. Right? <laughs> Something terrible will happen. So I want to point out some of these egoic games because what happens is on retreat when, we in, when the assassins come and they start chopping at that, we sometimes become disorganized. We don't know what to do. Right? We, see, we start to see through the game and we think, oh no, what, if I wasn't always pulling alarms, what would I be doing? Well, we'd be in class. Right? It's like, without all the running around, what would I do? I'm the one who runs around pulling alarms, right? Starting fires. Making up fires. We don't know what to do with ourselves at that point. It's a certain kind of death, rebirth, even in that. And we're always dying and being reborn here. I feel like every couple of years, there's a dark night of the soul, a death, and then a rebirth. Right? This is, I think, a really important thing to see, an important aspect of our, our life. So the assassins, when they come and they're chopping at the ego, they're also chopping away at our mythology. And we're sort of attached to that, our personal myth, the story of us, how we are, how we came to be. Over the summer, I read this book, uh, Ishmael, by Daniel Quinn. Has anyone read that? talks about this kind of... I had never read that before, and I was in Peru, and somebody gave it to me and said, what do you think of this book? And immediately I felt a resonance with it. I thought, yes, what happens in retreat is our mythology gets chopped into pieces. But we don't really like that. We get afraid of that. But to really be on the path, what I've seen is I have to let everything get chopped up. When I was on my retreat in my cabin, I spoke about this really epic retreat that I had in the cabin. It was so intense. My stories were getting chopped up. And one morning I woke up and I was sitting and one got chopped a little bit too much. And I remember I went outside and I screamed really loud. You know, I had this pure insight into emptiness. I was like, well, why am I doing all this then? You know, it's like, what is all this for? And I remember I screamed so loud, why? How, did, how is this happening? Right? Are you kidding? This, is a, this, isn't, hap- this isn't real? You know, it was like, and it's not like I stayed in that state. It all came back together. But the nature of insight is that it's like you have this root and it chops at the same place many times. You know, you have a tree and you take one chop. Some insights are radical and they uproot everything. Some we hit the many times at the same spot. Right? We have an insight, maybe a mild one, and then a deeper one. Right? And then it's like, can we handle that? And then another one comes along. It's like chops. And it doesn't come through thinking, though. Insight comes through this wordless, intuitive wisdom. If we could think our way to it, we would already be liberated, right? Because we know how to think. So it comes through some kind of the body. It comes through a deep, intuitive knowing. Another story that I wanted to tell you about was um, another time I had an insight into impermanence, because this is the other one, to see impermanence. It's really intense. So this was a few years ago. I, I wrote about it in an article, and somebody called me asking me to write an article about enlightenment. And at first I started laughing, and I was like, no, I, I don't really have much to say, you know. I'll call, I'll call you later or something, really, you know. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 it doesn't have to be really big. It was the editor of Inquiring Mind. Uh, the Vipassana newsletter, and she was like, we really want to hear something. It, it can be very short. It's only 500 words. You know, so I thought, I said, well, let me think it over. And then I remembered this time that I was practicing. I have been doing a lot of practice, and a friend of mine, we went off to, a friend of ours had a cabin in Mendocino in California, a few hours outside of the Bay Area. And we decided, him and I decided to do a little retreat there for just about three days. 
And so we were really going to practice. We were saying sitting, walking, we had a schedule, and then the evening we decided that we would just kind of share back and forth. So I was there sitting on the deck. It was in the summer. It was a beautiful forest. It was just magical. And I was there. And he was walking, doing walking meditation. And then I was just sitting off to the side. And then as I looked at him and I looked at the sun and I looked around, some type of uh, insight started to arise. And I saw very clearly that he would be soon passing out of my life. I saw this. And I saw everything begin to start to be moving. It was saying, hello, goodbye. And it was saying, hello, goodbye. It was as if, and it was a strange thing because I had very intense concentration in that moment. And my body became like a piece of wood or a rock. It was very still. And I could see everything in my life moving very fast. And it was saying, hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. I was seeing my family was saying hello, goodbye, and I was seeing people that I had once been very close to, and then because of the nature of life, we separated, or people that I thought were my soulmate, I saw these you know, great loves and dissolve, you know, and it was like hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, everything, and I looked around, and I, I could see the cabin was, it wouldn't be there forever, and I saw that everything comes together for a period of time and then it passes. Every moment is a hello and a goodbye. Every single teaching, every moment, every person. The nature of life isn't to stay together. It's always a hello and always a goodbye. And I stayed, I stayed frozen kind of like that. And it was only because I felt all this moisture that I kind of came out of it. My eyes were flooded with tears. My shirt had become very wet because it was the poignancy of this, of the hello goodbye, and to see everything in that way. And I saw my family that I will soon, you know, they'll they'll all be gone, right? They'll die, pass away, and people were being born. I could see that. It wasn't just death, it was the newness of creation, right? Trees dying, trees being born, things happening, moving. Anyway, so I tried to flag my friend. I was like, wait, you've got to understand this. Hello, goodbye. Right? I tried to talk to him in that moment. He didn't really get what, you know, he was like, wow. Anyway, we went back to San Francisco. I was living there. And for three days, I was in a state of hello, goodbye. It was unbearable, actually. It was so poignant. I was out walking in the park, and I would see a little cat, and I'd be like, hello. And it would go, and it's like, goodbye. It was like, what a beautiful manifestation. I would see these little flowers on the ground. I was like, hello, is everyone seeing this? They're, they're impermanent. And they would, you know, <laughs> people were like, I remember I called my mother. I was trying to explain it to her, and she was like, okay, I have to go, you know. <laughs> I was like, people have to hear hello, goodbye. They've got, I mean, I was like, and the point, the tears wouldn't stop flowing. I saw the beauty in everything. When somebody appeared at my door, it was like, hello. Like, who are you? It was like a fresh, was nothing was old. It was just new. It was like everything was new. My heart couldn't take it. Literally, my heart was bursting. And I suddenly understood all the mystics throughout time. I thought, surely they're seeing this. That's why they act like that. Right? That's why they just wander, going, hello, goodbye. Right? There's nothing you can do. What do you hold on to when you see this every single second? And thank goodness it closed, because I don't think my heart could have bared another few days of it, you know? nor my friends. You know? it was just, <laughs> they were like, what's going on with you? Right? And what happened, it was like this great window opened, and then it started to close. It was like the insight. And I, I integrated that back into my day, my day-to-day reality. And even though the insight didn't stay, or it was like a permanent, you know, where I was seeing that moment to moment, something very deep inside of me stopped clinging. There was some part of me that was a big chop somewhere, right? Just seeing that so much and feeling that and being in that energy of that, that was some deep truth. I felt like that it was, it had just arose on its own. It changed me, right? There was less clinging, you know? I would always say, well, things are changing, right? Somebody would be in my life and then they decide they didn't. I would think, okay, goodbye, my friend, 
you know, goodbye to all my friends wherever you are. We'll dance and then we don't. If there was a job that I had, it would end. If something comes into being, it ends. Housing changes, people change. To see this is really important because this gives us a certain freedom. We're not supposed to hold on to things. You know, and that's kind of the American dream. You get the house, you get the kids, you bear down and hold on, right? <laughs> to the end. You know, you hunker down, right? And cling like you, nobody's business, right? <laughs> and the nature of life is not that. Like, it's going to go, whether it's ripped out of your hands or not, right? And we've all clung to things that needed to go, right? Have you ever had a relationship that was ending and you started clinging? It's not good. <laughs> it's difficult. It's a way to learn hello, goodbye. Right? Because everything has its own nature. It takes a birth and then it passes. Everything coming and going all the time. So we start to see that when we hold on, we create dukkha. We start to see that when we believe in this kind of egoic consciousness, when we fixate on the stories of ego, the I, the I, the I, whenever you have a lot of thoughts going, me, 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 I, 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 that's a suspect right there, right? Thoughts of we, us, those are, that's better, much better, right? Because we're not separate. So we see the impermanence we see the truth of things of changing all the time. We see the dukkha, how we create the suffering in our mind. And we start to become aware more and more of the ego, the games that ego plays. Right? This is very important to see that. Right? It has this function. Right? When we're, we're angry or we're upset, how does this play itself out? How am I creating suffering? How can I let go more and more? It's not even really let go, it's let be. I think that's a better word. Can we just let things be? Mostly let ourselves be. The, mo- the people we torment is us. Right? Where the, I started to see that at the first retreat, like, I torment myself. Oh my God, I can't remember coming into an interview and saying that. I'm a tormenting myself. I was like, very good, step one, right? I was like, okay, I think I'm getting somewhere here. So we have to let be and let go. Even with the Dharma, even with the Dharma, we can create a whole identity around being a Dharma practitioner. Don't do that. Then we become an expert, right? We become, I'm a meditator, and then they're not. I'm awake, they're not. I have knowledge, I have wisdom, they don't. I'm loving, they're not. The, the ego masquerades as a Dharma practitioner really well. <laughs> Chogyan Trumpa once said that. He said, there's two paths, one to egohood, one to Buddhahood. They look very similar for a long time, right? Because the ego goes, great, we're being spiritual, I'll be the best one. <laughs> I'll sit the longest. No one will beat me, right? And when we have mind thoughts like that, it's good to be naked and humiliated. It's good to see the assassins chopping at the ego, even though it's brutal, even though they're tearing apart our myth of who we are. That's liberation, though, right? Even though it's like, right, like, okay, I'm almost going to leave if I see one more piece of truth here, right? Then we stay. We want to dismantle the ego. That's the point of it. This isn't to be an enlightened me. This is the uproot, the uprooting of I consciousness, right? This is very different. Some people could come to practice for a lot of motivations, right? And it's important to check: Are you where? What do you really want? Right? Where, is you, where are you setting your compass? Is it to the sun? That's important. So letting be is the way to that, and that's the paradox, I think, of meditation. It's like there's this path going somewhere, right? But the way to get there is to totally let go and not cling to anything. Drives us crazy. Right? So letting be. So one last teaching I want to share about, because it had an impact on me. So there, uh, when I, 
about maybe 10 years, maybe 12 years ago. It was a long time ago. Again, I was living in San Francisco, and I'd been practicing uh, for a few years pretty intensively already. So I was a very serious Buddhist at that point, deadly serious, right? And I wanted knowledge. That was my big thing. I want knowledge. I want understanding. And I had this kind of ferocity that bordered aggression, right? If anyone kind of got in my way. So I was invited to a, a three-day teaching with this teacher. Called, his name is Kempo Sultram Gyapso Rinpoche. Great teacher. Some of you know who this is. And uh, he is 80 almost. He'll be 80 this year. And I'd heard about this teacher from some friends of mine who are very devout practitioners, and, were, and, and it was going to be like a, almost, like a, almost like a private teaching. It was only for 100 people, and it was over three days. So I was very excited. And he said he was giving a nature of the mind teaching. So I was like, that's it. I want nature of mind teachings, right? And um, Kempo had, has a reputation. He was practiced for years in caves, and he was a scholar, I mean, even giving the Dalai Lama teachings at times, you know, this is someone who's considered very high. I mean, he started practicing Dharma when he was seven, right, on his own, going on pilgrimages in Tibet, taking his mother with him. So he's somebody that was like, Mom, we're going on these pilgrimages. And she said, okay, you know, apparently in his biography, which is quite beautiful, very beautiful, and is something kind of classical about it, you know, the last century, you know. So here's Kempo, and he's there. And so we come into this teaching, and, and, and I'm all excited. He's going to give the nature of mind teachings, and I'm ready and, and everything. So we're, we're sitting in there, we all get ready. And I noticed that there was, a, there was an altar and a stage area, and it was covered with toys. So that was the first thing I thought was kind of strange. It was like zingy things and... It's like, wow, he's a great master, and that's really odd, right? So then he comes in, and um, he has a translator. He does speak a little English, but not much. He came, he came in, and we all were bowing. And then they handed us these really thick songbooks. And I was like, that's really weird. Why are we giving these? They were like all Milarepa songs, right? And I was like, okay. So he sits down, and then he just looks at us for a very long time, everybody. Kind of past the point of being comfortable, like kind of just looking. And then uh, I'm ready for the teachings to start. I'm very anxious. I have my notebook. I'm like, nature of mind teachings is why I came. You know, you're a master. You give them to me, right? This is how these things go, right? So <laughs> I'm there. And uh, he just basically looks at everybody. And then he picks up some of his little toys, the zinger things. And he's like zinging them. And then, then he would look at us. And then he would tell the translator something. And then the translator would just say, Rinpoche says, relax, everybody. Relax your mind. And then I was like, okay. Um, this went on for like an hour where he would play with things and then tell us to relax through the translator. And I was like, okay, I was trying not to get annoyed. And then he was like, okay, now we're going to sing. So then he had this huge songbook. So, you know, you think, you'll sing a little bit. We were going on and on in these Tibetan songs, like, we'll be born in the pure lands, and on. And it didn't sound good. I didn't like it. And my mind was getting more angry by the minute. I was like, what is he doing? I paid money to come here. And then he would sit after we sing this long song session. Then he would sit, and he would pick up his toys again. And then, then he would think, he would be about to say something, and then it would be, Rinpoche says, relax again. Relax your mind. <laughs> and then to make it worse, somebody had given him this little monkey, this little gorilla monkey, and it had these little hand things. And you press the button, and it would go, wild thing. Uh, 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 and it was really loud. And he, he started for the last two or three hours just to press that at random <laughs> moments. And I was like, first it was funny, right, the first few times. And then I was like, what? I, I can't understand this. This went on all day. And at the end of the day, I was so, my mind was 
so aversive, so angry. And my friend, who I've traveled with there, she was, I was carpooling, otherwise I would have left, okay? I was so angry. She seemed to be having fun. She was like, this is kind of fun, this is great. And I was like, we're not getting teachings, what do you mean? So she's like, it'll be better tomorrow, come on, we'll go home, you're tired, you know? So I was like, yeah, maybe I'm tired. Uh, he, uh, surely he's gonna give the teachings tomorrow. So we go the next day, right? Same thing all day. The monkey, wild thing, the zingers. He had more stuff the second day. People had brought stuff, like they said, oh, he likes toys. So there was like all these stuffed animals. And he would just be looking at them. And then he never said anything more than Rinpoche says, relax your mind. And then we would sing. And then the last two hours, I was singing straight through. And I just kind of sat down and I was, when, you know, when you're angry, time goes very slow. <laughs> so it felt like I was in that room for eternity. And I was so angry with him. Like, I didn't come for this. I can't believe it. I, oh my God. And, you know, and everyone else didn't seem to mind, right? So finally, I endured till the end. And I'm just at that point sort of distraught, you know, like angry and sad and like, this is hopeless. Who, why would he do this to me, right? <laughs> and it was very much about me. And uh, so he gets up, and they're taking him out, and they're like, you know, he needs help. And they were like, Rinpoche is leaving. You know, everyone's bowing. And I was bowing even though I was really mad. I was just like, okay, I'll bow. And, um, and as I was sitting in the back row, I had moved to the back because I was just angry and I didn't want to give anyone bad vibes. So I was just slouched down because I stopped singing at the end. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I was sitting back there and he looks right at me and he's like... <laughs> and then he walks out. And then I was like... And then I kid you not, the funniest thing happened when he walks out after he did that and spontaneously I burst into tears and then I said really loudly I'm gonna miss him <laughs> and it was like this huge heart opening and then I thought about it you know and then there and my friends were looking at me by then like you're just going through something we don't know first you're mad now you're sobbing all loud over here like okay just stay over there and they were like you know getting stuff going and cleaning up and everything and I was just sitting there and um and I really, at, on the way home, I got it. It was like, let go. I mean, who could teach like that? If we did stuff like that to you, <laughs> you guys would leave so many notes. You'd be so mad. <laughs> right? Of course. It was like, but I want, it's like, what he was saying was relax. All the times he said, relax your mind, he probably said it 40 times. I couldn't hear one time. I was so irritated. But he was right. It was like all this wanting and trying to get he has so much knowledge. He's probably very awakened. I know he is. It's reported. He's a beloved teacher. And three weeks later, I heard he gave a beautiful teaching on the nature of mind, you know, <laughs> in New Mexico. That was like gorgeous for that group, but we needed that. That people, we needed that. I needed that. And it was like something Amy just said, maybe I should let go more. My friends were like, yeah. Maybe we should stop clinging. We're like, yeah. Let's just be. So it was a hard truth. You see how it is, right? I had to suffer. It was like clinging, holding. But I'm glad for that teaching. And I think of Kempo so fondly now. He's a beautiful being, beautiful teacher, really quite amazing. Right? So, so we're going to end now. And just remember... Let go. Just be happy. <laughs> right? We'll just sit for a moment.
And thank you for your kind attention, and we'll be back for chanting. So, hope you can stay up for that. <laughs>